This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From the land and sea they roam. Drinking wine in the great unknown. Hi, I'm Susanna Gold, and this is a new podcast series, and this is my second episode of it. It is a series on wine books with different people from the industry, and today's guest is Steve Ray. Steve is the president of Bivology, Inc. He's a marketing consultant to the wine and spirits industry and the author of a book I really want to hear about called How to Get U.S. Market Ready. So welcome, Steve. Thank you very much, Susanna. Happy to be here. Great. Yeah. Um, Well, the the genesis of the book is uh, in all the consulting I'm doing uh, with export wine and spirits producers trying to break into the U.S. market. People would say to me, gee, that's really good information. Um, You ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. And then one day, a mutual friend of ours and a woman who I consider a mentor of mine, Stevie Kim, had said, tell you what, if you write the book, I'll publish it. And that sealed the deal and made it real. Um, So that's the origin of the book. And what is the, can you tell me about the book? I have it. I read in it. I haven't read it cover to cover. Tell me how people can use this book. What's in the book? (laughs) Okay. So there's another book on the market that um, is, I think, better than mine, frankly. And it's called How to Import Wine, written by Deborah Gray. Deborah's a friend of mine as well. Her book is about how to import wine. My book is about how else to import wine. And it's predicated on the fact that the U.S. system makes absolutely no sense to uh, people from other countries, and frankly, to a lot of people in the United States as well. Right. And um, you need to understand it to be able to make your way through that. And so what I've included in there are a lot of the strategies that I found that get us around, above, and through obstacles that we know that people are going to face. Um, and so it's basically... Uh, the successful strategies that I've used to make things happen for my clients. Uh, and I hope that's uh, kind of a stimulus to people reading the book to not just copy what we've done, but be uh, innovative uh, using that as a, a base. And does it talk about the three tier system? Do you talk about, is it divided into different States? How to, how to, like, if I am imported into New York and I want to try to get into California, do you talk about that? Is that part of the book? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the, the simple factor is what I've found in, a, in my experience in consulting is people tend to make the same mistakes. My goal with the book was to help people not make the same mistakes again for the first time. And what I mean by that is there's this uh, process people go through and they seem to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So I've highlighted in the first chapter, the 14 mistakes that most people make in the order that they tend to make them. And it's amazing how often people said, well, I, I made all of them through 12, but I did eight and nine in a different order, but can you still help me? So that's kind of been the, the core of the whole thing is, okay, where were the inflection points or where were the opportunities in the US market development process for wines and spirits where people might trip up and what are some ways 
to anticipate those, preempt them, or get around them when they do show up. Can I ask you this question, though? So do you find, when did you write this book? A couple of years ago, right? 2000, summer of 2018. 18. So in the past three years, pandemic aside. 19. Sorry, the, 19. Yeah, 19. Have the two years. Have the laws changed? Has everything changed? I mean, do you update this book? Are you on like edition number five already? Because the laws are constantly changing. Like I'm thinking about direct consumer kind of, you know, laws. What, yeah. What's your view on that? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 a lot of things have changed, but most things have stayed the same. Uh, the details may have changed a little bit, but the fundamentals haven't. And, and what the book deals with is, is the fundamentals of how do I find an importer? And most people think, you know, they got two options. They can find a traditional agency brand importer or go through an import, uh, a uh, import solution provider like MHW Park Street. In fact, there's 10 different options for importing a brand uh, and various gray areas uh, betwixt and between them. And I believe real strongly that people ought to examine all of the op options out there before making a decision. So as an example, uh, people will say, well, you know, I, I want an importer for the whole US. No, you want, you want to start with an import solution that gets you established in the US market so that you can physically import the brand and get it put into a warehouse in the US. That's the primary role of the importer for when you're starting with your brand. You may end up evolving into another uh, import solution down the road, and that's fine. And that's why these import service providers like MHW and Park Street exist. They do the logistics part and all the uh, registrations with TTB and the things that you might not know about, which frees you up to do the marketing and brand development stuff. And do you find that people from one country rather than another, I know, of course, Stevie's in Italy. I'm sure you have a lot of uh, interested Italian producers, but have you helped people from other countries as well with this book? Like, how are you, how is your book getting out there to, let's say, Portuguese producers? Yeah, I guess the easiest way to answer that is uh, look at my passport. I filled, filled up one uh, about three years ago. It's the first time I've ever done that. Yeah, so I've worked with Portuguese producers. I've worked with Spanish, Italian, French, German, New Zealand, Australia, Chile, even uh, Bolivia. And are the problems the same across the board? It's not country driven. It's is it size driven? Is that if you're a small brand, you have the same kinds of problems? If you're a large brand, the problems are more similar. No, I think it's the same set of problems. And in fact, you know, you had talked about how to write the book. That's kind of the way I, I organized it is these are the steps in the process. And these okay. are the things you need to know about to make informed decisions about them. I'm not saying do this or do that, but there's here's eight different ways that you can approach this. Your situation is going to be unique, but at least you know what the parameters are and you know what the laws are. So the organization of the book was in that incremental uh, process of, gee, I want to import a brand. How do I find an importer? How do I get samples into the U.S.? How do I get a COLA waiver and so on and so forth? Um that's kind of the organization. And that was the approach. And that's true to everybody. And it doesn't matter what country you're from. What about um, 
I'm kind of curious now. I feel like everyone, rather than going out to buy Gary's new book and his non-fungible tokens, we should all be out <laughs> running out to get your book. Every producer anywhere is does is it this, you have chapters that work for wine producers, and then you have chapters that work for spirits producers and other kinds of liqueurs, or are are the laws similar? Um, the laws are very very similar between wine and spirits. There are wrinkles that differ differ between them, taxes, for example, but fundamentally the concepts are the same. Wines and spirits pretty much follow with the same kind of uh, similar regulatory issues uh, in contrast to beer, which is a very, very different industry and one that I don't participate in. So wines and spirits are covered in the book and usually I'll give a wine example and I'll give a spirit example in any given situation. Hmm. And Okay, so you write the book, you get this idea, Stevie helps you to publish it. Where is it sold? Is it sold on Amazon? Where can I buy it? Where can people buy one? Yeah, it's sold uh, a couple of places. One, you can buy it on Amazon.com. Here in the US, you can buy it on Amazon.it in Italy. And my understanding is um, you might not be able to find it on Amazon in another country, but you have to be from that country to see if that's even possible. So I, I can't tell by doing a trial. Um, I also have a, a website for the book called getusmarketready.com and you can order it in PDF format or in print from there. Oh, you can. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, so you can PDF the book as well. Yes. Um, and what about people who wanna do a private label? What about somebody who goes to a vineyard and they want to, you know, they talk to a producer and the producer says, I can help you make a private label. Are the, are the processes the same? Yeah, pretty much from a regulatory point of view, the things, you know, you need a COLA waiver to get samples in, you need to get, you know, if it's a spirit, you need FDA approval on the formula and so forth. So that part really doesn't change. But I think to that specific question, a lot of times people experience something, they want to bring in their own product for their own enjoyment or sharing with friends. So they may only be making 10 or 20 cases mm -hmm. that there are, there are rules and regulations from the TTB on how you can do that. And uh, it, it differs from the commercial uh, introduction that we've been talking about. And is that part of your book too? Uh, no, I don't address it at all. The private label side. Do, um, did you have to do a lot of research when you were doing the book? Yeah, but it was also, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm guessing a lot like you in that when stuff comes across my desk, I capture it and save it in a pretty organized fashion so that it's relatively easily retrievable. So that applies to data, it applies to laws, it applies to who's managing what brand, all this kind of stuff. So having captured all that stuff, because in addition to writing the book, I do a lot of speaking, as you know, um, and um, I use that background information to create PowerPoints and charts and tables and graphs and stuff um, for my presentations. So a lot of this stuff was on my computer. It was just a matter of organizing it and presenting it a way that made sense. Got it. And can we talk about kind of the mechanics of your, hmm. what's your writing process? Yeah, I used to work at an ad agency and my creative director once said to me, writing is really easy. This is how old the story is. He said, you just put a piece of paper in the typewriter um, and then open a vein. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like yeah. bleeding. It's, it's, it's yeah. hard. And, and every, it's and, hard. And, 
Everyone who writes knows it. And I think the hardest thing is writing less than more. It's pruning and being uh, precise in what you're saying, and clear in what you're trying to communicate and not overdoing it. Uh, my biggest mistake is I do big compound sentences. I use semicolons a lot. I shouldn't. Period works just as well. So the, the process I used was to basically some of the consulting I do is here's the process we're going to use. Here's a, a, an organization or a flow chart of what's going to happen. And that was the basic outline for the book. And then I, within that, I started using post-it notes and pasted it up on a big whiteboard I have in my office um, to make sure that the organization made sense. A lot of the things that were in the book I'd already written either as articles or given as speeches. So it wasn't creating something entirely from scratch. It's what I've been doing for the past 25 years, 30 years. Huh. So you didn't find, how long did it take you to, once you decided or you, you came up mm -hmm. with Stevie, you talked about this and you kind of committed to writing the book. How long did it take you? About three months. It was a whole summer. And the good part was, um, it, was a, it was a slow period in terms of clients. So I really just, I, I work out of a home office in my basement and I've had that for 20 years, even though when I had my marketing company, I uh, used to go into a real office. I, I like writing down here. I just buried myself for the summer, turned on the air conditioner and um, out popped a book. Now that makes it sound very simple. It's three months of tearing my hair out and uh, you've seen me, you know what happened. I don't have any hair left. <laughs> Well, I know you're joking about that, but it, you know, I have another friend that I talked to who wrote a book in a, in a different, um, a different field about uh, mountain climbing and using that as, you know, inspirational speaking and stuff. And he also said his book just kind of poured out of him. Yes. So I think that's very interesting because I've been trying to write a book for years and it is not pouring out of me. So I guess maybe it's um, the type of book that one is trying to write. So you have a space and a did you have a time that you wrote or did you write all day or did you kind of just bury yourself in the basement? Yeah, all day. I mean, that's, that was my task. That's what I was doing. And you're right. It, it did come out. And that was part of the problem. So much came out. It was a matter of pruning it to what's really um, essential to the points I'm trying to make. And so editing turned out to be the biggest challenge of the book. I, I didn't have anybody who was really an editor of the book. Yeah, I had proofreaders and things like that. And there were still a bunch of uh, errors in the book that made it through. But I really needed somebody to uh, critique it and say, well, you're duplicating or you're saying this three times. You only need to say it once. You can do this shorter, that kind of stuff. I had a couple of friends that I'd worked with over the years who, who had done that for me. And it was uh, they were very helpful. But mostly it was a, man a matter of pruning and sharpening um, than it was, you know, coming up with content. Do you have any tips for aspiring writers? Yeah, write. <laughs> the best way to do it is just start writing. Uh, granted, I, I use an uh, outline. I have a pretty disciplined way of doing it. But at the end of the day, um, as you know, as a writer, uh, whether you're doing magazine articles, you're doing books, or you're doing PR, um, it, you kind of have an idea of what you want to say and it comes out and you sit down in front of a typewriter and stuff happens. Um, that's what I find. Did you ever face a blank page mm -hmm. or did, did you come out every day with like, did you write about today? We're going, I'm going to write about X topic. And so you just pour everything out about that topic. Did you go through your outline? 
Um, yeah, well, I, since, as I said, I had it up on the whiteboard and so I would pick a post-it note and I would work on, that would, you know, either be a column would be a chapter and a post-it note might be a, uh, a section within a chapter. Huh. Well, I, I, I have to say, I think it's very impressive to have written a book. Was it like one of the things that you aspired to forever? Yes. And one of the things I am absolutely most proud of, um, just last night, for in fact, I was out to dinner with my wife and I said, did you know that I wrote a book? <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite proud of it. Yes. I would be proud of it, too. So do you have a next book in mind? Not really. Um, I think I'm a one trick pony here. I mean, this is a subject that's uh, near and dear to my heart. It's what I do on a daily basis. And it's a way of um, getting down on paper um, the things that I think are going to help other people. And that was the, the, the idea of the book is to help other people not make the same mistakes others have made before them again for the first time, as I had mentioned earlier. And so there's a lot of examples of mistakes that were made, the significance of them and how you can avoid making them in the future. So the idea is more of not a roadmap to follow, but more like a, uh, an outline to think your way through. And that's why I think using the phrase navigating the complexity of the US market is really what's happening here. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. tell you when to turn right, but it tells you, okay, here's a buoy. You gotta do something, left, right, you know, make a decision, but um, that's the navigation part. Very interesting. And what's your favorite comment that somebody made about your book? Oh, I wasn't expecting that one. That's a good question. Um, oh, you wrote a book? <laughs> Is that <laughs> from people who have known truth. you for a long time? Yeah, 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 that's the honest truth. You, you wrote a book? <laughs> <laughs> I guess those are old, old and dear friends from childhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, like actually, it, was, it was the guy who uh, was helping me doing the, the, the critical, <laughs> critical editing, and that's kind of where we started. That's um, actually funny. Yeah, um, so you don't think you're going to write another top, another book? No, but I'm doing a whole lot of different things. I mean, the, the book basically made it possible for me to do a whole bunch of different things and to evolve, not only in my career, but also in um, the kinds of services I provide and the things I do. As, as you know, I also do uh, an annual lecture at the uh, University of Bologna Business School in, in Bologna, of course, where you went to school, I think, right? Not I didn't PBS, go to that business but... school. I, I did go to school in Bologna. I went to Johns Hopkins. I went to SAIS. I did not go to Alma. I did not go to that school. I went to. But you were in different... Bologna. And I was. A, I love Bologna. Absolutely. It's, just, it's the greatest city. city. I actually think that school might be even in front of my graduate school. I think it is it in Via Belmoloro. Do you remember no, that? No, it, it's up. No, it's not. It's up on the hillside at a former palazzo of a cardinal. So the whole oh. business school is, is in one building. Oh, okay. No, um, not, no, not I love Bologna. Campus. I love Bologna. Yeah. It's I lived there for a year and it's just a great city, great little jewel of a city. So I lectured there at the business school and I also at Cornell, which is my alma mater at the hotel school, which is now part of the business. So getting back to the wine and spirits mm -hmm. world, are there areas that are exciting you now, different parts of that you're discovering or grape varieties or regions of the world like Bolivia that you have discovered that you really are excited about in terms of wine? Yeah, it's in, in, in reality, I look at this is as a strategy for living an enjoyable retirement, which is to travel around the world and have somebody else pay for it. 
Um, so I, I look for places that I look for companies in places or in, in countries where I haven't been before or where, the, where there will be new experiences. Um, Bolivia, as an example, still grows grapes uh, in some cases the way they did, you know, a thousand years ago with oh, right. a thousand, I said 500 years ago when the Spanish first came uh, at the base of trees. So the vines could climb the trees and they would climb the trees to get at the grapes. Um, things like that are, are kind of fun and new experiences of like Rapasso in, in Italy and different ways of making wines and meeting the interesting people. So to me, it's more of a, I think of a, 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 a wine book almost as a gazetteer of all the places either I've been or want to go. Well, it sounds like a pretty nice retirement if one can can retire. I don't think that's ever in the cards for me, but I'm glad to know that that is something you think about. Um, anyway, Steve, anything else you want to talk about? Other projects that you'd like to share um, that you think people should be thinking about? Or yeah, well, a couple of ideas. Feelings you know, about the shipping crisis, or you know, anything you um, want to dish out. Oh, that's crazy. The market's crazy now, but. You know, it's always going to be something that's going to be crazy. I guess my philosophy on that, there is a solution to every problem. It may not be a good one, and it uh, probably isn't going to be the one you want, but there is a solution to every problem. So be creative and think it through. And in the case of writing a book from what you've done, focus on your target audience. Well, you know this from writing magazine articles. Focus on your target audience, the uh, the tone and manner of the book and of the uh a magazine, who it's oriented to, what their education level and industry experience is. My book is written to people who are new to the wine and spirits industry. And I'm guessing it would be boring as sin to you because uh, uh, there's probably nothing in the book you don't already know. And in fact, when people- when No, I that's people, not true. I'm, I'm not an importer. I've thought many times in my life about becoming an importer and I've thought about bringing in product. So, you know, I, I disagree that it would be boring to me. I'm sure- okay that there are different aspects of it that I would be interested in because there are all those kinds of questions that one thinks they know the answer to, but they don't necessarily. And people always ask me questions about importers. So I yeah. can either buy them your book or read it and then sound more intelligent myself. Well, to that end, so what I do, uh, and I get probably you know three or four inquiries a week, either from my website, cold calls or something. I've, I've, I've got a lot of Google juice. And so I'm very visible online. If you type in anything about import wine US, um, mm -hmm. my name and stuff is going to come up. Um, so I use the book as kind of um, a test. So I tell them, hey, you know, talk to you, talk to everybody first time. And then I say, either buy a copy of the book or here's a copy of the book. Um, let's get back on the phone in two weeks. And yes, there will be a test. And it'll be very clear whether they read the book or not. And if they haven't read the book, uh, there's no sense in me going forward with them because I gave them the keys to the kingdom and they chose not to, to use it. And you'd be amazed at how many people do that. I'd say probably 80 to 90% of the cold calls that come in uh, don't want to do the two hours of reading it takes to understand all the problems they're going to face and then some, and, and how to solve the ones that they can't even anticipate that they're going to get. That's the real May I ask what you attribute that to? I mean, are you like a pop psychologist? Have you come up with a behavioral science view of why people do this? No, I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> and that's what I'm amazed that everybody tends to do the same thing in the same order. I don't know what drives that. Maybe it's the way that they 
pose questions and then come up with answers and they incrementally go step by step without having a holistic look at the whole thing and planning a path through it. So that if you, if you, one of the tools I use, I have a spreadsheet with like 181 things, literally, that you need to think about in order to launch a brand in the United States. Uh-huh. As long as you've gone through that and thought through all of those things, either alone or together with your team or agency, whoever it happens to be, you're Mm going to be so much better prepared for facing unanticipated challenges than anybody else. And and a lot more agile in being able to shift gears because, you know, I forget who said the quote that, uh, you know, the plans go out the window as soon as the shooting starts in a a war. Mm -hmm. I think the same mm-hmm. thing is true in navigating the, the U.S. market. This market is flooded. We have more of anything you can think of already and don't want anymore. And I don't care if it's a 98-point Brunello de Montalcino that'll blow your mind. I got a lineup of guys who got 99s who are trying to get in too. Right. So it's, it's not like the, the market has very many holes. Sometimes there's a lot of innovation where uh, categories are created. Um and as an example, rum chata is one of those. Fireball is one of those. And one is kind of an old uh, creation of a category, Jägermeister. Mm. Who would have ever thought yep. a, a distasteful um, liqueur? So or, distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> would become the shot of the country. But in answer to your question um, was, is there anything I'm interested in? Yes, I'm passionately interested in e-commerce. And in fact, um, I was in uh, Verona last month uh, to give a presentation on e-commerce at Wine to Wine, there's tremendous changes taking place in the industry, empowering people with new channels to sell their products within the three-tier system, but without dealing directly with all of the traditional obstacles that they would normally face if they went through a traditional agency brand importer. So I'm seeing all kinds of innovation. Um, and your point about Gary Vaynerchuk's book, uh, is a perfect example of that. Um, he, he's creating things that never existed before that people never even thought of. And I think that's where the opportunity has to be. And e-commerce is going to be the, the even the playing field for everybody, even a small producer of Palinka from the Balkans uh, to find a place in the U.S. market. You know, mostly what people want is, I just want to be able to sell my product in the U.S. Not that I want my product to be successful in the US. That comes down the road. They just want to be able to get in and have a fair shot at it. E-commerce is offering tremendous opportunities and tools and services that allow even small players and people that don't have a lot of money to play on an even playing field with, with the big boys. Are there any platforms that you think everybody needs to be on? Yeah. Um, when it comes to brands, there's the one that's I'm most excited about. And in fact, I just did an interview for my podcast of the guy who founded it. Uh, his name is Roy Clipper and it's called City Hive. And they do the backend e-commerce site for about 2,500 retailers. And basically the retailer gets that for free. Uh, the real value of the service is in the data that's inherent in it. And the distinction between City Hive and all the other platforms like Drizzly and Thirsty and Saucy and everything else that's out there is that the retailer maintains control of the customer relationship. You know, in, in the case of Drizzly, it's a third party facilitator. So the order goes through Drizzly. Drizzly has the relationship with the consumer, not the retailer. The retailer. Right. Just and Drizzly is owned by Uber, right? 
They just bought them for a billion dollars. Right. The way that uh, individual retailers and I think people coming to the U.S. need to think about is focus your efforts to meet the needs of the small local liquor shops, because that still predominates in the U.S. and it it accounts for uh, a significant portion of the above $15 wines that are sold in the US, not supermarket under $15 wines. And if you can carve a niche for yourself, providing things of value to retailers using tools like City Hive via e-commerce, your brand becomes just as good and important as uh, Johnny Walker. Even more so because oftentimes the retailer can have it on an exclusive basis. So this platform, could you repeat the name of it? Sure. City Hive, like Beehive, but City Hive. Uh-huh. Okay, so they they control the um, they control the back end of where people are ordering, and so the customer relationship remains at the retail store. Right. So, for example, giving a practical example, Gary's mm-hmm. Wine and Marketplace in New Jersey, one of the better mm-hmm. retailers in the U.S. He has. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are four stores working together in New Jersey and one in Napa that he has. So not a uh-huh. huge player, but is a huge player from point of e-commerce. He has 33,000 customers that order um, uh, only online, which is huh. kind of interesting. ABC is another one down in Florida, 126 stores. So we're not talking about just the mom and pop independent, but we're talking about stores whose bread and is uh, bread and butter is selling a diverse selection of wines to people um, and providing some education as part of it. Uh, Gary made this really great quote, and this is, I think, captures the essence of it. He said, Drizzly helps me sell bottles. It's wonderful, okay? City Hive helps me build my business because it enables me to remarket to customers who have already come to me. So my cost of acquisition, the amortized cost of acquisition goes down dramatically with each subsequent purchase. I'll give you one example that I think is kind of cool. There's a store in Southern California called The Liquor Fountain. It's run by a guy by the name of Trevor Hoff, and they are part of the City Hive network. So City Hive did his e-commerce site for him. It massages the data so that you're presented with a dashboard of conclusions or inspirations, if you will. And he Uh looked at it one time and he saw that he had one customer who had ordered 55 times uh, within a two-year period, spent $2,000 mm-hmm. and had never walked into the store. And it turned out that that person happens to be an influencer in another community outside of the beverage industry network of people who are really into bourbons and, and um, uh, rice and you know whiskeys of that type. And so mm-hmm. my philosophy on <clears throat> how to market your product is to get other people to tell your story in their words to their friends. And that's what this guy stumbled on at the liquor fountain. And uh, he's been able to uh, exploit that because that's what City Hive basically literally put right in front of his eyes so that he didn't have to go huh. through all the stuff and have a consultant interpret the data for him. It was just, there it is. Hey, look at this guy, do something. That's really interesting. I was not aware of City Hive. So Steve, were you ever a retailer? No. Why? Just curious. Just curious because you're just talking about it a lot from the point of view of the retailer in a smart in a smart way. And I just wanted, wondered, had you ever been a retailer? No, I, I'm doing it because they are the gatekeepers. When we're looking for 
paths to U.S. market entry. Mm -hmm. I believe one of the best ones in for any supplier is to align themselves with one or more or a group or organization or confederation of retailers to provide value to them that allows them to compete with the bigger guys. And that means providing either bigger margins or mm -hmm. uh, unique project products or relatively unique products. So you were talking about private label before. That's where mm -hmm. that might fit in. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about direct import? No, not necessarily. Direct import to me means that the product goes, clears to customs and goes directly to either the retailer, if it's mm -hmm. DI to the retailer or DI mm -hmm. to the distributor, as opposed to going through um, a public warehouse like Western Carriers in New Jersey mm -hmm. and then get trucked to somewhere else. Both are fine, but they're just different ways of doing it. I'm talking about having brands that are sold only in your store. And if you look at a total wine advertisement, uh, you will find that many of the brands that they winery direct are the winery direct program is basically a private label program. It's brilliant. Um, the same model uh, as a point of fact is used by Dan Murphy's in uh, Australia, which has about a 50% market share down there has about 1500 stores and uh, a, a large percentage of what they sell is private labels only in there. They're, they're not even seen as private labels because it's a duopoly in Australia and the only place to shop in many cases is Dan Murphy's. So to them, it's a real brand. That's very interesting. I did not know that about, about Australia. I have been to Australia and I have visited a couple of wineries in the Barossa Valley, but I am not as well-versed as you in the wine scene down there. So I've got to check that out. But I so appreciate you sharing all of this knowledge with me and my listeners. And I want to thank you for your time. And I suggest everybody should read your book. So where can they get it and remind us of the name of it? Please. Okay, some contact information. So my yes. email is steve at bevologyinc.com. The book can be purchased at amazon.com and .it uh, because it was published in Italy. Uh, you can also get it at getusmarketready.com. My social handles are variations of Bevology Inc., either a comma or whatever. You'll, once you go into a Twitter or Instagram, you'll, you'll find it. And my goal in, in all of this is, I, I read a really great book about 20 years ago by Chris Anderson, he's the editor of uh, Wired. And the title was Information on the Web Wants to be Free or something you know, approximating that. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's what I believe is really the case the value that people bring to the party that can get converted to billions of dollars is showing them how to use that information in a way that they can make money with it. And the perfect example is Gary Vaynerchuk and NFTs on his new book, If You Buy 12 Copies, which you both said is brilliant. Well, that is just crazy. That is crazy modern modern stuff, but he's a, he's a great marketer. And apparently yeah. so are you. So, thank you, Steve. I thought thank you knew you. that before we talked. I did, but I'm always learning. I'm always learning. Susanna, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So is it, it was always great a joy to, to chat with you, Steve. Too. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay. My next conversation will take place uh, next week, and it will be with Mike Madeo about his book, Lost Mount Penn, Wineries, Railroads, and Resorts of Reading. It starts talking about German immigrants of the 19th century who brought their traditions of winemaking and cuisine to the slopes of Mount Penn. Mike is a really funny guy, and I'm excited about that conversation. And I had a real blast talking to Steve Ray this week about his book. 
called U.S. Market Ready. I hope if you're interested in this topic, you go out and buy that book. In terms of the podcast, you can find us on Fridays, wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From